From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Sean Doolittle about his new novel, Device Free Weekend. We're talking about the cultural fascination with billionaires right now, the way technology impacts fiction, and what you can expect in his new book. In the case of Device Free Weekend, I was sort of contemplating my own relationship with social media and what I think of it, while at the same time I was starting to come across news items like restaurants who would take your phone at the door so that you would be forced to have just a meal with people not looking at screens. And then I started seeing travel companies advertising vacation packages that were billed as device-free. And, and I started to detect in these you know, media stories this kind of yearning for people to disconnect instead of connect. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is zero. In which case, ouch, but okay. If you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more, more importantly, thank you for listening. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Billionaires are all over our media right now. I'm a big fan of stuff like Succession and The White Lotus, where rich people get very stressed out and I get to laugh at it. And there's also recent hits like Knives Out and Glass Onion, which combine the troubles of the ultra-wealthy with the whodunit. My guest today is Sean Doolittle, who has a new novel out called Device Free Weekend, in which seven friends and one eccentric billionaire go on an all-expenses-paid reunion on a private island where no phones, tablets, or laptops are allowed. Quickly, it becomes clear that their old friend Ryan has something unthinkable planned, and it's up to the rest of them to stop him before the world changes forever. Device Free Weekend is available now wherever you get books, and here is our conversation. So your book is called uh, Device Free Weekend. My One of my things I was wondering about as I prepped for this was, will he have his phone? Will he bring his phone? Does he have trepidation about bringing devices? Uh, but no, I see you do have it. Yeah, it's not a device-free interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, you, do you have uh, issues with the use of devices in general, or is that I, just all in the book? I don't. I, I've never been... Uh, technophobe. Um, in fact, a, a little bit of a gadget head, although I'm constantly surprised at how quickly like the iPhone became just an indispensable part of daily life. Yeah. Like I often find myself thinking, how did we do any of this before? And it, it's astonishing to me sometimes to think that like we didn't even have these things until 2007, the iPhone came out. That's like one teenager ago. That's not very much time. And it, and it uh, sort of took over the world in a hurry. Yeah. Well, like uh, yeah, maps or just even oh, like yeah. being bored in line. That, that's right. That's right. Just waiting for something is completely different than it was just not so long ago. 
So that's what I wondered. Does that uh, does that bother you at all? Is there a, a part of you that's having that sociological critique that made it into the book? I'll tell you what does bother me, and I and I think it's phrased something like this in the book. Um, what bothers me is if you walk out, if you forget your phone one day, how awkward and itchy and like naked you feel. Like it, it feels like you're just lost. Yeah, and I. And I, that does bother me that I feel so helpless without it. I, the phone itself doesn't bother me, but my dependence on it sometimes bothers me, yeah. Have you ever forgotten it? Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> well, now, nowadays you can't – like if you, uh, if you work in an office where they have computer security, uh, you can't even log into your computer at work without a phone anymore because we've got dual-factor authentication and all kinds of other stuff. Or sometimes you go to a restaurant, they don't have a menu. If you don't have a phone to scan a barcode, you can't order. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I, I talk on this show a lot. I sort of complain about our attention spans and how I feel like we're manipulated by the infinite entertainment that we just carry around in our pockets. And, you know, what Neil Postman called amusing ourselves to death. And then mm-hmm. Theodore Rojak, I've been reading a lot lately. And his his take was that you feel like you're more you know aware that you're picking up on all this information. But really all you're doing is maybe looking at a headline or you read a paragraph and you memorize parts of that. But you're not really processing. You're not really thinking. And so it's this weird thing where I feel like an old guy throwing rocks at the train sometime, but it's like uh, it's disturbing what it's doing to the way that we process the world. I do agree that it, it feels to me like an attention span destroyer. Um, you know, the, like you said, not only are you not processing things often when you're scrolling and doing whatever, but you're not, you don't process things the same way. Like, I mean, if you sit down and read a long newspaper, paper article or a magazine article now, it feels a lot longer than it used to. I mean, when you get really conditioned to 240 characters of Twitter or, you know, whatever fits on whatever size screen you have, it, it does change the way you process information, I think. Well, and you're in the, the book business, which requires attention for a sustained amount of time. That's right. Well, we were just talking too. you know, I, I, I was given a, a PDF of the book to read to prepare for this interview. And I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying reading this, but I don't think I read as well on a PDF as I do on paper. And again, does that just, does that just make me old or is that a real thing? What, I, it might think? make you old, man. I mean, <laughs> it, I feel like it makes me old. I feel the same way. It took me a while to warm up to like reading on a Kindle or, mm. or on a uh, iPad or something like that. Um, they're great for traveling. They're, you know, they're great for packing a lot onto a, you know, one size thing. What I miss and what you don't get from a Kindle is, you know, when you, sometimes I'll pull a book off of my shelf, you know, an old book that I haven't read for years, let's say, and I'll open it up and a receipt will fall out of it from a store that doesn't exist anymore. And yeah. I'll remember the day that I put that receipt in there. It's like an artifact of my life. Right. Uh, you don't get that with a Kindle. It's movie tickets for me most of the time. Uh, <laughs> Those are my bookmark go-tos. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> movie tickets are good for that because they're, 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 uh, they're firm. They, yeah. they don't... Although we don't even have those anymore, really. I get a receipt at some places or it's all on my phone. Show them your phone, yeah. (laughs) So who who were some of the authors that you were were reading physical copies of the books uh, and that were inspiring you when you were growing up? When I was growing up, oh, man. Well, you know, early on as a kid, you know, I read a bunch of Hardy Boys books and, you know, that that type of thing. I I remember one of the first books that really, like – 
locked in the reader's life for me, I think, was Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls. I remember we had a fifth grade, and my fifth grade teacher read us that book. And uh, and then I went and found a copy of it myself and read it to death. And uh, Really? You wanted to dwell in the sadness of no. these dead dogs? <laughs> it was horrible, but, I, you know, like it, there's something about it. It kept me coming back anyway. I just loved the world. I loved being in that world. Yeah. Um, and then later, a, a similar thing happened. Once again, a teacher um, uh, read us, an English teacher read us some stuff out of a, a short story collection. I remember on Fridays, every other Friday or maybe one Friday a month, if we'd done good work, uh, we'd take a Friday and he'd read us a story. And his favorite thing to read from was the collection Night Shift by Stephen King. Ooh, dark stuff. Okay. Yeah. And boy, uh, that... Not only did that further my love of reading, but that was what really kind of started to light the fire for me as a young writer. Like I, I, I just re- really remember those short stories inspiring me to try doing it myself. I loved the way they, I loved the, how bite-sized they were and the way they could take you to another place for 20, 30 minutes. And I just thought, man, I wonder if I could do that. How old were you when, uh, when that impulse started? Uh, I must have been around junior, senior in high school. I think I was a senior in high school when I really started. Like I sat down at that time, I had my mother's old typewriter. Um, and I can remember as a senior in high school banging out a terrible little short story <laughs> on that old manual typewriter. And uh, uh, that was about the time it started, yeah. Do you remember what it was about? The, the short story? Yeah, your terrible short story? Yeah, it was like if I remember – well, there were two. I remember writing two, and they were both sort of inspired by that Stephen Kingy sort of feel and also like the Twilight Zone. Uh, if you remember that old show, there was often like a twist ending. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I wrote two short stories that had kind of twist endings. One of them, I think it was a, it was a guy like – like a rich guy in a penthouse apartment and like an assassin breaks in and kills him. And, and we find out at the end of the story that the reason he was assassinated was because he'd removed the mattress tag from the <laughs> bottom of his mattress. The one that says, do not remove under penalty of law. It's more like a punchline than a, and a I thought, Twilight Zone. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the other one was like, I don't even know. I don't know if I can remember the other one well enough to even describe it, but I remember the mattress tag one. Like <laughs> that was the that was the extent of my ability to formulate a plot at that time. But it was, you know, it was the first time that I got that sense of, you know, starting a story, writing it, finishing it, letting other people read it, taking comments and revising it. And I think I even at that time, I think I sent it out in the mail for publication. I mean, it was not publishable in any way. But I started learning that process of finding markets and sending your work to them and getting rejections back in the mail and, you know, getting a sense of how that whole process worked. I mean, I started doing that pretty early on. At that point, did you decide, all right, I want to go to writing books and I want to make this part of my life in a major way? Or was it sort of just experimenting at that point? It was experimenting at that point, but I had definitely had a, a real love for it. I mean, I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed the just the writing itself more than even the idea of being a writer. I just liked writing, which I think is a good start. I, I, a writing professor of mine once early on told me there are people who want to write and there are people who want to be writers. Mm. I think it's better to start out being the first one. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Sean Doolittle, 
about his new novel, Device Free Weekend. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. I've talked to a lot of writers, and not all of them like writing, I've found. Yeah, well, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of them, they say, I, I, it's a compulsion, right? Like, I have whatever idea, I need to get it out there, but it's going to be a fight every single day. Yeah, it often does feel like a fight, um, you know, getting that idea that you have in your head out into words on paper uh, feels hard. It, there's, there's another quote about writing that I've always liked, and it's, I think it goes something like, the definition of a writer is somebody for whom writing is harder than it is for other people. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that uh, that describes the struggle, but also you know what you're looking for. You know what it needs to be. You know what it shouldn't be. You know, that's, that's how craft starts, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's something that I've often felt that the craft part of it, you improve your craft uh, – in really small, hard-won little increments. I mean, you craft, for me, it felt like craft improves slowly, but my ability to critique myself and to see what's wrong improves in leaps and bounds. So I think that's why why that quote came about, why writers feel like writing is so hard, because your ability to see what's wrong with what you're doing improves faster than your ability to do it well. Right. And so like when you first start out, you're just all enthusiasm and a bundle of energy and you really don't know anything and you don't know what you're doing wrong. You don't know how hard it is. You don't know what the odds are. You just do it. Right. You realize what you didn't know. You realize. Yeah, I guess that's something along those lines. I guess that's it. (laughs) Well, um, Stephen King is a good example of someone who is very readable. He's popular. He has a level of craft. And if people can get over some of their preconceived notions about genre as kind of like low culture, it seems like he's the way to get a lot of people to appreciate writing in a way that maybe they don't if they have to read the Scarlet Letter or something. Right. Um, so was genre something that you always were sort of interested in exploring as a writer? Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think for probably that reason, just for how accessible it is, um, you know, there's there's often the perception that genre stuff is sort of less serious or or <clears throat> less deep than than literary works. And, right. and, and maybe sometimes that's true. But in a case like Stephen King, you find really human themes and really rich characters and 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 a lot of literary depth in a very accessible package. Right. And that's what always attracted me to genre stuff. I, I like the I like the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down, I guess. Well, you know, there's also this idea that if we if we treat literary fiction as automatically better, if you read a lot of it, there's there's plenty of good ones, plenty of bad ones too. It's not like sure. genre is automatically worse in any way. It's always seemed kind of nonsense. And Stephen King seems like he's done a lot to try to break that barrier. Um, I know he's written a couple books on writing as well. He he recommends writing what like two thousand <laughs> words a day, mm. which which can be a lot. How how much do you do a day, or what's your process? Boy, it it really depends, and it has changed as I've gotten older. Um, I feel like a good day. Like I, I feel happy and satisfied if I get a thousand words. That's kind of like my sort of benchmark that I'm going for. If I can get a thousand words in a, in a day, day's writing, I feel like that was a productive day. But at the same time, as I've gotten older and busier and, uh, you know, 
things like energy conservation become more important. I try not to like, I try not to set too many hard and fast limits for myself so that I'm beating myself up if I don't hit a certain word count. Um, I kind of let the story dictate it. It's always harder going in the beginning. And then maybe there's times you get stuck in the middle or, and by the end, you know, by the end, there may be days where I'm writing 3,500 words in a day when it's really cooking. Um, and, and that's great too. But I, I think the re- however many words you write, the key is to try to be consistent and try to do it every day if you can, if not at least regularly. You got to kind of treat it like a job and sit yourself in the chair and produce some amount of words every day, even if they're terrible and even if you only got 25 of them. I once read that uh, Michael Crichton said he would write 10,000 words a day when he was in the middle of writing something. Mm-hmm. He knew what it was all about. And that sounds like so many that it, it, it sounds fake to me, basically. <laughs> it does sound fake. I, and I know there are people who do it. I don't know how. I can't. But, yeah, there are people who, you know, there was a, a, a crime writer named Lawrence Block who was sort of famous for uh, writing his books in a month. He would He would plan them. And then he would go off and hole up for a month, and he'd come out with a book. I couldn't do that. Michael Crichton can do it. I think Stephen <laughs> King could probably do it. I can't do it. There's a, a craft consideration there, too, which is that in, if you're trying to do it that fast, it must all be in your brain already, whereas another way to look at it would be the new inputs over the process, over the time it takes to write something, maybe enriches it, maybe gives you new directions to go in. Would you say that uh, you are still receiving a lot of input over the course of your writing process? I would say for myself, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm often surprised. I'm not a great outliner. I try to plan. But I'm not a very good outliner. I, something to me about like the only way to write is to write for me, um, and I can I can map a story out a little bit ahead. Not to keep throwing writing quotes out, but uh, another one I love is uh, I think it was Eudora Welty possibly who said uh, like it, writing a novel is like driving in fog. You can only see as far ahead as your headlights. Yeah, uh, but if you if you keep driving as far as you can see, eventually you'll you'll get to where you're going. And that's kind of the way it is for me, writing a novel. I can see a few chapters ahead. Sometimes I know, like, kind of where I think I'm going to end up in the middle, and maybe I'll have an idea for an end. Uh, but I'm often surprised. Like, for Device Free Weekend uh, is a great example. I did not know the ending of that book until I was there. And until it came out, I didn't know how that book was going to end. And is that exciting for you? It's part of what makes it exciting. Yeah, that that feeling of discovery as you're as you're working. That's kind of what keeps you coming back, or at least what keeps me coming back. Yeah, it, it, the subject of it was kind of interesting because billionaires are all over the place in our <laughs> culture and just in real life. Uh, in Nebraska, in particular, I've complained on this show that it seems like uh, Nebraskans when they picture an ideal leader. For some reason, they seem to like insecure billionaires. Like, <laughs> this guy's dad was rich. Why doesn't he make the big decisions? And that's right. I find it odd. Um, where insecure billionaires. That's good. I, I think there are there are billionaires who maybe have earned a respect that's a little bit different from just having inherited a lot of money or inherited a lot of status. But I, I do wonder what you think about the way that billionaires can just be kind of automatically revered in our society. It, it seems like maybe that was a concern that led into some of the ideas that uh, your your book explores. Well, uh, you know, and especially in the tech space, 
you see like what almost feels like instant billionaires sometimes, you know, somebody, somebody has a good idea and it catches on and it makes a lot of money. That doesn't necessarily make that person a better leader than you or me or a wiser person than you or me or, or anything more than they're just people, you know, just like you and I, they just are people with a whole lot of money. Right. But they're seen as somehow special or I think, um, sometimes it's sort of like this, uh, this sense that maybe one day I could be like that, right? Maybe they shouldn't pay taxes because I would like to not pay taxes and keep a billion dollars. There is always something aspirational uh, in looking at really wealthy people or really famous people. Or I, that's something that I almost feel maybe changing in the culture just a little bit now. I don't know if you feel that or not, but I was thinking back the other day to that old – uh, show that used to be on forever on television of, called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, where the whole point of that show was to sort of ogle wealthy people and wish you were them. Yeah, um, It's kind of hard to imagine a show like that now. It would sort of seem a little gross, I, I think, don't you think? Well, I think there's, there's kind of two components of it, because I think about, you know, like a show like Succession, Mm-mm. we're watching the, the troubles that they run into, the conflicts, but also I think we like the lifestyle. There is something about seeing them get into the helicopters and yeah. go from one place to another that feels kind of cool. Yeah, or like yeah. the White Lotus. I don't know if they're billionaires exactly, but like the, the lifestyles <laughs> of rich people is all over. I think a lot of the entertainment that we're drawn to. That's true. I mean, and there's a lot of stuff out right now that at least shares a vibe with Device Free Weekend in that way of right. people traveling to a sort of a rarefied place to do super cool things with super rich people like, uh, you know, the new Knives Out movie, A Glass Onion, right. or uh, you mentioned White Lotus. That's a good example. There's that there's that movie that's out called The Menu. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, a bunch of foodies going to a island to have the most desirable menu imaginable. I mean, it, it's it's not going to go out of fashion, probably. It uh, it's It's easy to it's easy to wish your life were cooler, I guess. Well, yeah, and I do think you're right, though, that there's there's the sinister element to it where we still want to vicariously live through these rich people. But maybe we're more OK with, you know, like in the case of the menu, bad things happening to all of them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We don't – there's maybe not the, the sympathy that we get from the other characters because it's always sort of like the super rich and then usually one person or a couple people who are not that rich. And our sympathies are definitely not with the rich people in that dynamic. That's right. Yeah. The uh, – the, uh, the the regular person is always the hero in those stories, right? Right. Yeah. I'm talking with Sean Doolittle about his new novel, Device Free Weekend, in which seven friends and one eccentric billionaire find themselves on the cusp of a world-changing dilemma. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chance on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break.
and welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on your favorite app, and while you're there, we'd love it if you'd give us a review. I'm talking with Sean Doolittle, who has a new novel out called Device Free Weekend, in which seven friends and one billionaire go on an all-expenses-paid reunion on a private island where no phones, tablets, or laptops are allowed. Quickly, it becomes clear that their old friend Ryan is up to something unthinkable, and they have to stop him before the world changes forever. Device Free Weekend is available now wherever you get books, and here's the rest of our conversation. So Glass Onion uh, does share a lot of DNA, it seems like, with your project. It's uh, So in that, you've got Edward Norton as kind of an Elon Musk sort of person, invites a bunch of people to his island uh, where he's got this game planned out and then things sort of go wrong. And so you're, the, the similarities end pretty quickly when mm-hmm. you get into the actual story. But did you watch Glass Onion? Uh, yeah, I did. We... My daughter was home uh, from school for Thanksgiving when the, during the week when they did the theatrical preview, and so we just did a little family movie outing to Glass Onion, and we all had a good time. Were you uh, like was when you saw the trailer for that or heard about the plot? Was it annoying because you're sort of like that sounds familiar? <laughs> it's happened before, believe it or not. Yeah, I uh, I'm, I'm sort of you know publishing moves kind of slowly. And so it's not uncommon to see your idea like it's what's sure to happen when you're waiting for your book to come out is that suddenly it seems like everybody's putting people on islands and beating you to the punch. Um, so I, it didn't bother me so much because I've had some practice at it. Um, uh, my fir- my very first book, uh, which came out on a s- small unknown press back in 2001, was set in the funeral industry and really close to publication uh, that show Six Feet Under came out and <laughs> any thunder my book may have had was effectively stolen by Six Feet Under but uh, uh, I've been practicing you know watching other similar things to my books since the very first one so uh, when we went to Glass Onion I was not bothered but I definitely could perceive like as the movie started and people are you know, the friends are gathering and they're doing the traveling and they're getting to the place. And I mean, you've you've seen the movie and mm-hmm. read the book. So, you know, there's a very f- similar vibe there. And uh, I could feel my kids kind of looking over like, oh, my God, what's dad going to think of this? <laughs> <laughs> In that movie, it, it sort of solves its own mystery really quickly. And then you let the comedy play out afterward. Mm-hmm. And I think it is interesting um, with these types of setups where, you know, you're withholding a certain amount of information. And yours is not a whodunit. It becomes more of a thriller. But pacing some of the reveals has got to be something that's a, maybe a difficult line to walk. So how do you decide how to pace a book like yours? It's it, it can be a difficult line to walk. And with this book, what I found added to the difficulty was that it's kind of a large cast. I mean, there's seven people – uh, seven friends that reunite. That's the premise of the uh, story is seven people who met in college uh, reunite in their 50s. In the in the ensuing time, one of them has become uh, a social media billionaire. He's created like the largest social media platform in the world. And now he's got his own private island and he's going to invite them all to come uh, spend the weekend on his island. Um, and so, you know, there's a certain like you want to hit a certain pace that feels page turning and thrilling without shortchanging the character development. But then you've got seven people, seven characters that you kind of need to define and they all need to pop and be individuals and, and, and feel not like 
carbon copies of each other, but like individual people. So I found myself juggling a lot with this book. Um, and I don't know if it's something I might have been able to tackle as as easily when I was a younger writer. I, I, it's, pacing is something that I find that you, after you've done a few books, you start to develop an instinct for. I mean, you, you've got your own instincts as a reader, um, and then you develop further you further those instincts the more you write and so a lot of that pacing is instinctive and it's something that i find myself questioning in my own work a lot more than i used to because you mentioned attention spans right off the top of this program and i think that is something that is starting to impact the way stories are paced and the way we expect books to go and how 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 many pages are we going to stay interested before the first murder happens, let's right. say, or yeah. whatever. And I feel like that's changed over the last few years. I, I feel like, you know, when, when you go back and you watch a movie from the 70s, let's say, like, I don't know, Deer Hunter or something like that, that wedding scene in Deer Hunter lasts forever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you would never see that. Nobody would sit still for that in a movie nowadays. And I think the same thing is happening for books. Um, you know, Stephen King's a great example where you might have 50 or 70 pages of lovely character development before the monsters start eating people. Um, you don't see that in books as much anymore. People want, they want the stuff to happen faster. So it's, uh, it's a question I've asked myself, you know, is this, is this fast enough? Is it too fast? Is it, you know, moving at the right clip. Are you pressuring yourself then to try to a adjust, or is, is it like an editor saying kill somebody? It, it's probably more me pressuring myself than it is anything else. An editor would just say, "Yeah, shorten this." <laughs> Does it disturb you then that your writing is shifting because attention spans are shifting? I guess yes and no. Yes and no. Um, no, in the sense that I can always stand to. Uh, you know, hone my own craft and, and do more in less space. And I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's good to uh, continually learn and grow and, and change your own skill set. Um, but there are times when I wish I could take more time and uh, maybe like go down a side path for a little while longer or, uh, you know, go into somebody's backstory for a little while longer. And, and maybe I feel a sort of a ticking clock in the back of my head that's telling me now you, you need to get back to the get back to the main stuff. Um, so whether that's, whether that is a self-imposed restriction or an actual restriction, I don't know, but it is something that I feel. So do you think in what, 50 years, uh, every chapter will be 30 words long? Maybe. I mean, when you, you know, like not, the, the, I'm not making a value judgment here one way or another, but if you pick up like a, you know, a novel that's known for being a page turner, let's say like take a James Patterson novel or somebody like that, all the chapters are very short. Um, the, there's a lot of white space on each page. The paragraphs are not dense. They read fast for a reason. You know, there's a, there's a psychological um, dynamic that, happens I think when you finish a chapter and start a next one mm -hmm. you know you, you have that you have that little feeling of accomplishment and that desire to keep going the shorter the chapters are the more often you have that feeling so you just keep burning through pages and it's it's rather effective for making a fast moving read I wondered on that on just a, a sentence and paragraph level too because it, uh, the paragraphs for the most part are fairly short and you move uh, pretty quickly or like if a character has a thought you know the, there is 
not a ton of dense blocks of text throughout the book. And I wondered if that was intentionally to try to keep the pace moving really quickly. I think so. And I think it's something that's developed in my writing over time. I mean, if you look at my earlier works, I think the paragraphs are longer and denser and the sentences are a little longer for good or for bad. And that's not really for me to judge, but I, I do feel like I've become more concise over the course of, I guess, eight books now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of that is part of that is a good thing, I think, because um, it forces you to choose the right details, let's say, to present instead of, you know, sort of writing your way around the correct detail. You actually can just quickly, you know, in a brush stroke, do what might have taken me three or four sentences to do when I was a younger writer. Um, the the pitfall or the thing that I don't want to have happen is that something feels superficial or it feels like it had, you know, doesn't have depth or like it's moving too fast or you don't, you know, one thing that I learned from reading Stephen King is the importance of character um, to a story. I read a lot of books. I often don't remember plots. I don't remember what happened. Even in movies and shows, I don't often remember what happened. I remember the people. I remember the characters. And so I'm always very concerned with characters feeling like real people that you enjoy spending time with. And that's something that you can shortchange if you're, you know, moving too fast, I guess. Who are some of the Stephen King characters who made the biggest impact on you? Oh, gosh, boy. I don't even know if I could uh, name specific characters. But in every Stephen King book, there are characters that you grow to love. Or, you know, other writers, too, not just Stephen King. I mean, it's the... You know, I was talking with a friend of mine fairly recently about the show Game of Thrones. I don't know if you watched Game of Thrones, but it was a big, epic-feeling story with a lot of exciting stuff and battles and, you know, whatever. And we were talking about what we each enjoyed the most, you know, and – I think, like, I enjoy the characters walking from one place to another and bantering with each other as much as any of the battle scenes in Game of Thrones. That's just what makes – that's what engages me and makes me want to watch it and especially makes me want to rewatch things. I want to get back to those characters and how I felt when I was with them. Yeah. Well, so you're, one of your central characters, we've already said, is a billionaire. So this character, Ryan – I imagine it's sort of difficult to figure out how do I make him seem like a real person when, you know, I imagine you're probably not a billionaire. So mm. some assumptions of like how, what does the personality have to be like um, to make him sympathetic as a human. But also there's some sinister turns. And so to, to create that character as well, every character I imagine has some element of what you relate to. Some part of you makes its way into each character in some element. So how did you build the character of Ryan? Well, Part of the premise of this book is, as I mentioned earlier, um, it's best friends who met in college um, before the Internet, reuniting as middle-aged people in the social media age. And I wanted to play with that dynamic a little bit. But in terms of building the character, I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of or any close friends who are billionaires. But I have close friends, and I know people who I met in college. And one thing that I often find, and I'm sure you have too, when you get back together with somebody that you haven't seen in years, it's it always shocks me at how you immediately revert back to 
the personality dynamic that you had with that person 20 years ago, let's say, um, no matter how much has changed in your life or what your current levels are in society, you kind of immediately fall back into those old patterns of behavior that you from from where you left off. And so I started building the character that way by imagining, I mean, I don't know a lot of billionaires, but I have college friends and I remember what it was like. Um, and so I started building the character out from, from there. Um, so in Glass Onion, the character is just a complete buffoon. <laughs> he doesn't really know anything about anything, especially whatever it is that's made him rich and how he uses it creates problems for him. So how did you decide when you knew you were going to write a story about a billionaire, um, how much the tech genius part would actually apply versus the image of a tech genius that a lot of these guys are good at perpetuating? Right. Well, I I knew for for plot reasons, I may like Ryan Cloverhill is the name of the character that we're talking about. He's the he's the mogul uh, that created this this tech platform. And I knew that his genius had to be somewhat genuine. In other words, he didn't he didn't fall into a pile of money without really planning on it. He 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 built this from the ground up. Um but in Ryan's case, I think his genius is almost a coping mechanism. I mean, it's natural, but like he has some he has some difficulties with in, interpersonal relationships and some abandonment issues and some things like that that almost drive him harder, which I think you sometimes find in writers and tech geniuses alike. Uh, um, and so, so my the way the way I imagined the Ryan Cloverhill character was that. As somebody who has a lot of natural aptitude, but also an emotional need that drives him um, every bit as much as his technical expertise does, I guess I would say. Well, in this this book, I wonder if you you saw it as kind of a, a departure from some of what you've done in the past, in the sense that it's almost moving towards science fiction. Uh, and we, we talked about Michael Crichton earlier. I thought he seems like may, maybe he was somewhere on your radar in the sense of uh, a, a, a real concern about society, which he would sort of merge with thriller elements, thriller tropes, and then sometimes some almost like ridiculous, silly science, but he would make it seem plausible, and that was the scary part. Right. Um, so, I mean, do you feel like you're moving in something like that direction? Was that an intentional uh, career shift? It, it was intentional both for – practical and personal reasons. Um, This is a different book for me in a, in a few ways. It's, it's the first sort of like high stakes sort of thriller that I've ever written where we're talking about like uh, global ramifications of what the villain is up to, let's say. And it's also the first book I've ever written that you could call topical, I guess, uh, which is something that I've always shied away from on purpose. Um, because the flip side from my way of thinking, the flip side of topical is outdated. Sure. So I, I've always wanted to write books that sort of could, you know, stand some test of time and not become immediately unfashionable as soon as whatever fad I was writing about wears out. Um, but you know what, this, this connected world that we live in, while topical is not going away anytime soon. And, and it seems to be the fi- the stuff I find myself thinking the most about now. I mean, that's the other thing. Um, uh, 
you know, I, as I, as I've gotten older, the, the stuff that concerns me changes. And, um, you know, that's, if, if, if I sit down and try to think about the things that I have the most to say about, um, the way technology has changed the world in my lifetime is probably one of those things. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Sean Doolittle about his new novel, Device Free Weekend. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. You don't seem like the kind of writer who starts with like, I have a statement to make, though. Not really. So is it what's concerning, what's scary is kind of what guides you to a new idea? I guess so. I... For Device Free Weekend, I a, a few things like for me, books come together when ideas from various different places start sticking together. Like I don't always start with one unified goal of I'm going to write a book that is the definitive statement on relationships or you know middle age or marriage or or whatever. I'll see something here that seems interesting, and then I'll see something over here that seems interesting, and and somehow maybe those two things stick together and they become even more interesting. In the case of Device Free Weekend, I was, you know, I, I was sort of contemplating my own relationship with social media and what I think of it, um, while at the same time I was starting to come across news items uh, and device addiction too. I was starting to think of that whole thing about forgetting your phone and, and feeling like you don't know how to live your life. And then I was starting to see news items like, you know, restaurants who would take your, you know, patrons, the restaurant would take your phone at the door so that you would be forced to have just a meal with people not looking at screens. And then I started seeing travel companies advertising vacation packages that were billed as device free. And and I started to detect in these, you know, media stories, this kind of yearning for people to disconnect instead of connect. And then I came across, uh, like, oh, I think it was a, a real estate website that was selling islands. And I thought, I didn't know you could just buy an island. Like anyone could buy an island. Uh, and, and all of those things start like, I, I find titling books to be the hardest part of writing a book. I often struggle to find a title. But this one just popped into my head, device-free weekend, and I thought, I know exactly what this book is going to feel like. And I thought, okay, so we're going to have we're going to have these people going to an island for a device-free weekend because they want to unplug and just be together without the distraction of technology. And then, well, why are they going there? And who owns the island? And all of those questions started to pop up, and and I found myself answering them pretty quickly. And uh, this book just sort of clicked together that way for me. And it was it was kind of all came out of that just, uh, you know, ruminating on, you know, the connected world and the desire to not be so connected. And uh, social media, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? I personally, I, I'm not a power user. Like I have a Twitter account. Uh, I don't really use Facebook or Instagram or any of the other ones. And I, and I've struggled to find my own comfort level, even with Twitter, because I find it sort of pushes all the worst buttons in my own personality and I, and I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I find sometimes I'm looking at stuff and it's just making me mad. Yeah. I click on an account because I'm like, this guy, I know he's like 
blah 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 happened. I bet he's gonna have a dumb take. And yeah. I'll look and I do get mad. And then I, I don't even always. Re- I usually don't respond. But I'm just like, why am I pushing a button to make myself mad instead? That's of right. Doing something that makes me happy. You start to ask yourself that question. Yeah, and it you know, but and you you can uh, you can feel yourself. It's hard to look away, even when you're miserable, even when you've been scrolling Twitter for 25 minutes and you just feel like crap, you still keep doing it. Why? Well, you know, it's fast. It's easy. I know there's going to be way too much stuff for me. Like, I can never read all of it. And what if you miss something? What if you look away and you miss something? I guess, yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, are are there times where you put the phone away intentionally, like you're going to watch a movie or something? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I, I you know, especially when I'm home, I, I'm a big forgetter of my phone in other rooms. Um, and it kind of annoys people sometimes because they're texting me or trying to get a hold of me or whatever. And the phone's upstairs and I'm downstairs or, or whatever. But I, I do try to kind of like be less attached to my phone, especially when I'm at home. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I want to know what's going on too, right? I mean, uh, I'm just like everybody else. So. Yeah, I find for me, like if I go to a movie theater, that's a good excuse where I consider it rude to take the phone out. I'm not going to take the phone out, uh, and I can kind of disconnect in that sense. But other times, you know, I do think, like we, we talked about just being in line. And like I got a coffee right before I came here, and I thought, like, do I really need to be – your book got me thinking. Do I need to be looking on Twitter while I'm just right. waiting for a coffee? Well, and and you talked about, you know, reading physical books versus reading books on a Kindle or, mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, it's something that I've found amusing in my own life as a parent. Like, there, I, I've had times where I've been sitting at like a weekend baseball tournament, let's say, and they get those days get long. And uh, sometimes I'll bring a book and I'll sit there reading it, and and I'll notice the way people around me respond to that. Or sometimes even my wife will kind of <laughs> elbow me and say, "Don't be rude." But I'll look around and everybody else is staring at their phones. That's not considered rude, but sitting there reading a book is sort of considered rude. And I just think that's part of the cultural conditioning that we we expect everybody to be looking at their phones. But if you're reading a book, it seems like you're really separating yourself from the group in a in a kind of a rude way. Well, then that speaks to the type of attention that we're okay with versus mm. the type of attention that maybe is uh, becoming less prevalent. Yeah, that makes you write fewer, uh, shorter chapters and shorter paragraphs. Maybe so. I was thinking when you're talking about um, relevance in your plots and like writing a book that's sort of about the issues of now and worried that it might be dated. uh, From what we've been talking about, it sounds like just looking at how long a chapter is tells you like, oh, it's dated. Look, there's there's a Dickensian (laughs) paragraph here. Twenty pages long. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, that that's – we are talking about thrillers. I mean, I think it's still possible to go out there and find a rich, dense book with long sentences and long chapters. I mean, that hasn't gone away. But uh, I, I do definitely feel like um, we – filmed entertainment, TV shows, you know, movies, whatever, have been – around for a long time now and we're all very conditioned to watching stuff and I can feel like since streaming came along I can feel even my own like streaming interferes with even my own reading because I tend to like watch Netflix at night instead of reading a book right and so our attention spans get attuned to the way a TV show or a movie works and when we go read a book we're we, we take that conditioning with us to the book. And so I, I can see oftentimes you'll read a book and you think this feels like a screenplay. And I think there's a reason for that. 
Yeah. Well, we, we talked about um, some of the, the ways that you start to write is not so much a statement so much as something's bothering you, which lends itself to thriller, right? You're going to sort of extrapolate something that's maybe scary. So what, what, are, you, what are you bothered by? What's, what's scary to you right now? Oh, man. Well, the book that I'm working on now has a little something to do with something that I find a little scary. And I find myself really questioning my ability to pull it off in a way that I want to. But the this is not unique to me, but the way it feels sometimes like we as a collective society don't share the same reality anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always the case. I mean, you never you never perceive things exactly the same way that somebody else does. But it feels like we're living in a time now where where we and everyone we know can look at the same event and come away from it with vastly different interpretations of what that event was, what it meant, whether it was good or bad, whether we accept it or don't accept it. Um, and I find that fragmentation of a shared perception or a shared reality rather disturbing. Yeah. So you, 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 are you, I don't know if you're at the point where you're ready to talk about how that's manifesting into a story. Well, it, it's manifesting in this story in the in the realm of conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking, which mm-hmm. has always existed. Um, used to be kind of fun. Yeah. Paranormal stuff was – I remember 15 years ago, it seemed cool to talk about like the ancient aliens, stupid show and right. UFO hunters and all of that. And uh, I was talking with Mary Roach about this because she wrote that book all about paranormal like ghosts afterlife. And I thought, you know, what seems so fun and innocent and just like a goofy way to think about the world now is so weaponized into disinformation. Right. That's right. That uh, it disturbs me. It feels more serious and scary now. Like one of my favorite shows – of all time, probably, but certainly when my wife and I were younger, we loved the X-Files. We were X-Files yeah. nuts. I love it, too. Not only was the show itself fun, but some of the most fun characters on that show were the three dorks, the lone <laughs> gunmen, gunman, right? Yeah. The conspiracy <laughs> guys. And and half the time, they ended up being right, and that was also part of the charm of it. That all feels very the, – the, the quirky, kooky conspiracy theorist isn't so funny anymore. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought when they did the, re, the the revival of the X-Files, they tried to figure out a way to balance that. And it's like you, you can't because it's just we're that's, not in the same world. That's right. That's right. The world has changed for sure. Well, so, OK, that's kind of a dour note to end on. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about uh, you've got some events coming up, some events uh, for the book for uh, Device Free Weekend. What 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 do you want to plug? What, uh, yeah, you well, uh, here in town, I'll be at the Bookworm um, on February 28th, which is the publication day for the book. Uh it's a great store. Um, they've always been very supportive of me, and so I'm very excited to be back there. Uh, I'll be with another local author named Lydia Kang, who wrote a great book called The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding, which I really enjoyed. And if your listeners haven't seen it, they should check it out. It's a it's a great kind of period World War II era uh, historical mystery that's uh, got a lot of charm and great characters, and I really enjoyed it. So check out Lydia Kang's book. Yeah, we had her on the show, oh. um, which was great. And I think she has a Star Wars book coming out, too. Right? Oh, is that right? I've never met her. I I was amazed. Uh, uh, somebody had given me her book um, and said, hey, here's an Omaha writer. And I did, I wasn't aware of her at the time. And uh, and I read it and really loved it. And then I read a little bit more about her. And But I didn't know she was writing a Star Wars book. I'm going to meet her for the first time at the bookworm. So. 
Yeah, then she's a doctor. The... I've worked as hard as I can to accomplish some amount of stuff just writing books. I don't understand people who are already accomplished in another field and then go write good books. I just think the amount of time, like I feel bad. Like I should, I could probably be doing something more productive. I mean, Lydia's probably written two books by now. Yeah, yeah. People like Lydia Kang are are good at making you feel bad about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but she's great. She's great. Uh, all right. Well, uh, for anyone who wants to check out your upcoming book or your previous books or just to get Device Free Weekend, uh, where should they go? Uh, the bookworm here in town would be a great spot. All right. And uh, as far as updates on your new one, you want to plug your – should we plug oh, your social no. media? Would, yeah. that, would that be appropriate? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Sean Doolittle <laughs> if you like. I don't post a ton. I'm usually just recommending books uh, that, I, that I read and enjoyed. But uh, – all right. Hit follow if you like. All right. Well, this was great to talk to you. Thanks for giving me a chance to read your book and to worry about the world with you for an hour. Well, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. Mm-hmm.